From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. A Democratic lawmaker who lost his son in the Aurora theater shooting is encouraged by the president's call for a nationwide red flag gun law. It's something Colorado already passed, though not without controversy. Tom Sullivan joins us. Law enforcement goes into homes every day and removes children from a dangerous situation. All I'm asking is that people care as much about their children as they do their guns. Plus, the Republican who prosecuted the Aurora Theater shooter on the president's call for speedier capital punishment. Later, a new expedition to solve one of the world's great mysteries. What happened to Amelia Earhart after that final radio call? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A red flag gun law is one of the policies President Trump proposed Monday after mass murders in Texas and Ohio. Ohio's governor just called for the same. Well, Colorado has already passed a law like this, which takes effect soon. Here's the president speaking from the White House Monday. We must make sure that those judged to pose a grave risk to public safety do not have access to firearms and that if they do, those firearms can be taken through rapid due process. That is why I have called for red flag laws, also known as extreme risk protection orders. Now, the sponsor of Colorado's law, which remains controversial, is Democratic State Representative Tom Sullivan of Centennial. Sullivan's son, Alex, died in the 2012 Aurora Theater shooting. Welcome back to the program. Uh, Thank you for having me. Tom, a federal red flag gun law. What do you think when you hear that? Uh, It's certainly encouraging. That's always what what you strive for, is to do things incrementally, state by state, you know, community by community. And what the eventual goal is that it be a nationwide thing. You've told us in the past that you're not convinced a red flag gun law would have prevented the Aurora Theater shooting and thus saved your son's life. How do you see it relating, if at all, to the shootings in El Paso and Dayton? Again, we're at the very early stages of that. In the Dayton one, what what I've come to understand is that he drove his sister there. So, you know, a family member knew, didn't have any idea of what her brother is capable of. And Um, and in fact, the sister died and was murdered by her brother. Absolutely. And the one in, in, in El Paso, I've seen law enforcement say that person was not on their radar at all. The important point there is that it might be a family member, it might be a member of law enforcement that gets the process started with an extreme risk protection order. But in in these cases, it might not have made a difference. Exactly. We won't have any ability to stop the lone wolves. And that's what both of these, from initially looking at, these seem to be those instances. An extreme risk protection order is going to help us in the long run curtail some of this. It's not the end all. It's not going to stop all mass shootings. It's not going to stop all suicides, but it certainly will help. I'm glad you mentioned suicides because I recall from the earliest days of debating the red flag gun law after you were elected to the state house that you saw this as much relating to suicide as to murder. 
Correct. Correct. Yeah. This is someone who's in the throes of a, of a mental situation, anger situation or something. 97% of the time will take the action against themselves as opposed to doing uh, what these two individuals did this past weekend. So it's interesting. I hear you on one hand gratified that this might be discussed at a federal level. I also hear you saying this may not be the proper solution to what we're seeing in the country in terms of mass shootings. Well, that that is correct. I mean, but the mass shootings are, although they get a lot of the attention when they happen, that's not where we lose you know, our, our people in our community, that happens on a daily basis with random, you know, gun violence, suicides, domestic violence. That's where we lose, you know, and, and have murdered uh, up to 100 people every single day. These are the instances where it gets the national attention and we actually, in these cases, get to know the names of the individuals. We don't know the names of, of the other 71 people that were murdered, you know, Saturday night. You have reflected this on your social media feeds. So let me just say the mass shootings this past weekend were just the latest in the last week. Lots of people have heard about the attack in Gilroy, California, that killed three, injured 15 There was a shooting that same night in Philadelphia, three killed in that one, 12 injured. Here's what you tweeted after Gilroy. I'm reluctant to speak out about the Gilroy Garlic Festival, not because it's not a tragedy, but statistically, seven other parents had a child lost to gun violence yesterday. They just didn't get covered. This is a national health crisis that needs to be addressed daily. What do you mean, addressed daily? I went to a rally on Sunday night, and I mentioned to those people that we could have a rally like this every single day because we lose up to 100 people by by gun violence. It was just in this case that we actually, you know, know their names. Is it your sense, then, that extreme risk protection orders, these red flag gun laws, would have an effect on those other types of shootings. Yes, absolutely. You know, those who are known to law enforcement, those that family members are concerned about, this gives them something. And they've been asking for this. Family members have been asking for this. Law enforcement is already going in to homes in removing people or removing firearms or removing children from these situations. They came to us and said, we need something legally that gives us this ability. The extreme risk protection order gives them the legal opportunity to go in and temporarily remove firearms. Now, when the president was speaking of our possible federal red flag gun bill, uh, he talked about how important it is there be a due process protecting the rights of someone whose possession of guns might be restricted. Critics of the bill in Colorado, including a district attorney, George Brockler, uh, based in Arapahoe County, who prosecuted the Aurora theater shooting, He argued that the bill didn't do enough to protect due process. Would you want more protections in a federal law? 
you know, I the the due process again is is a dog whistle term that they have the ability to use that makes everybody scramble, you know, uh, for answers. What do you mean by that? A dog whistle term? Well, it's they they go to the Bill of Rights to you know, uh, and and uh, the Fourth Amendment, you know, due process, and 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 that caused everybody to feel as though something was happening. But they, we do that every day. Law enforcement goes into homes every day and removes children from what they see as a dangerous situation. All I'm asking is that these people care as much about their children as they do their guns. Is there one other bill, one other law that you would point to that you think would make a difference for mass shootings in particular? I mean, we're we're looking at some of them here in the state. You know, possibly raising the minimum age. There's, that there's, is to purchase a firearm. To, to purchase a firearm, raising the minimum age. The kid left from California and only had to go next door to Nevada, where he could buy a long gun because he was only 19. What if we had gotten Nevada to raise that age? Maybe if the kid had to drive all the way to Wyoming to buy one, maybe that would have stopped him from maybe doing that. Are we talking about the Gilroy case? The Gilroy, yeah, yeah right. I mean, because he drove just to the next state, okay? So maybe if we raise the minimum age for the purchase of a long gun to 21, maybe even 25. So that's something you're considering for the next session, do I hear? Yes, that's, yeah, we, we have had uh, discussions, certainly with the earlier case that we had um, where our schools were shut down by that young girl that came in and was able to buy a long gun. This was if, around the anniversary of Columbine. Colorado goes with what the federal um, limit is, and the federal limit right now is 18. So we could move the, the federal limit uh, to 21. That's something uh, that the president could do. Are you talking with members of the congressional delegation? I I know that you were at U.S. Senator Cory Gardner's office, Republican U.S. Senator from Colorado. Yes, I once again tried to talk to my U.S. Senator. My hope Monday was to explain to him what the parents in Dayton and El Paso was going through, remembering what happened to us. Because the Monday following... A weekend mass shooting is when you have to begin to plan a funeral. That's when you have to start getting family members to let them know when it's going to be because they're making airline reservations. They need to get time off of work. They're going to be driving in. You've got to clean that spare bedroom up because your mom is going to come and stay there. Uh, You have to get all of those types of things done. And in the background, your son or daughter's pictures on the front page of the paper. Um, they're talking about it on the news. Uh, the president uh, will be making some comments. Congressional people will be making comments. And all of the media, you know, requests and the conversation, it's on the news every day. I wanted to explain that. And did you get his ear? No. Once again, I was left outside. Even now, as a state representative, Um, You know, I gave them that card. This was the fourth time I've been to his Denver office. I've been to his Washington, D.C. office. Um, This was the first time it was unannounced. Every other time I have made an appointment so that he knew I I was coming. And, um, you know, and that's that's what's so— And he has yet to meet with you? Has yet to meet with me. Have you tried this with Senator Bennett, the Democrat? 
Senator Bennett, I've met numerous times when Mike Kaufman was my congressman, uh, met with him uh, many times. And that's one of the things that I said to his staff there. I've, I have probably met 25 percent of the sitting uh, senators um, right now, probably 30 percent of, of the congressional, I mean, nationwide congressional. I've pretty much met all of the ones, uh, you know, from Colorado at, at, at some space and time. But of, for, of both parties. Yeah. Uh, do you ever get a meeting with his people? We did in the past. Normally what, what we've done when we make an appointment, you, you know, they open the door, you have a staff member, they have meeting rooms, you sit in there, they take notes and take your cards. And, and that wasn't happening on Monday. Tom, thanks so much for being with us again. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Tom Sullivan is a Democratic state representative from Centennial. He sponsored Colorado's red flag gun law, which takes effect next year. Sullivan's son, Alex, was murdered in the Aurora theater shooting. We reached out to Senator Gardner's office. A spokeswoman confirmed that Sullivan had met with Gardner's staff in the past, but she declined to provide any further details. Okay, when we come back, a different perspective on the prevention of mass murder from the Republican district attorney who prosecuted the Aurora theater shooter. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Do you hear that sound? That is the sound of commercial marijuana cultivation, the vast majority of it, indoors and lots of humming and whirring. Cannabis cultivation takes up so much energy. What it takes to grow pot with no carbon footprint. On the latest episode of On Something, the new podcast from CPR. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado is the site of some of the nation's most notorious mass shootings, including Columbine and the 2012 Aurora Theater attack. Before the break, we heard from State Representative Tom Sullivan, who sponsored Colorado's new red flag gun law. Sullivan's son, Alex, died in the Aurora shooting. Our next guest was closely involved in that case, too. George Brockler is the district attorney in Arapahoe County. He prosecuted the shooter who got life in prison. George, welcome back to the program. Ryan, thanks for having me on. I should say this, too, real quick. I I was also the prosecutor on the Columbine massacre, the guys that sold the Tech DC-9 handgun to Klebold and Harris. So... This intersection between firearms and dangerous mental illness and people who would misuse these weapons, it's not foreign to me. Uh, Let's start with President Trump's call for a national red flag law. Do you believe it would help reduce mass shootings like the one we've just seen in Texas and Ohio? I think that is speculative at best, but I want to qualify that. Uh, Listen, I believe, like Tom Sullivan believes, and I think like most Coloradans and American believe, that the law has a duty to try to intervene between dangerous mental illness and firearms. I believe that. And when you say red flag, it feels like it's a one-size-fits-all thing. It's like the color red. I tell you red, you might be picturing the color of this light that's above us right now on the microphones, but there are a myriad shades of red. Well, red flag laws run the gamut from some that are very conservative, that have the ability to protect due process all the way to the one in Colorado, which in my opinion is one of the most extreme in the country. So you would not like to see a complete duplication of Colorado's law federally. You'd like there to be tweaks made. 
Well, absolutely. And I think, too, the, the, what people ought to remember as they listen to this is federal government isn't going to pass a red flag law. What they're going to do is to bribe states into adopting a red flag law by offering them money and grants and some other financial support if they adopt one that is substantially similar to one that they have. So the bill that was proposed... Maybe it's this session, maybe it's last session, was a Senate Bill 506, had a bunch of Democrat sponsors. I don't think there were any Republicans at the time. But it doesn't say there's a federal red flag law. It gets states to do it by offering them bucks. You call it a bribe. I suppose others might refer to it as federal encouragement. Sure. Um, you have used the term dangerous mental illness. These red flag gun laws obviously raise the question of whether there's a connection between mass violence and mental health. I want to add this from the National Alliance on Mental Illness, which generally supports these laws. Uh, If they don't target people with mental health conditions, but allow for the removal of guns from any person who poses a real evidence-based risk. Is the discussion around mental illness to some extent misplaced here, do you think? No, I I don't. And let me tell you why. Just taking a look at Colorado. In Columbine, there was no diagnosis that we're aware of before the shootings. But all of the experts, including the FBI behavioral analysis guys and gals, uh, psychiatrists that have all looked at this, have all said, based on the information that they've looked at after the shooting, that these guys were diagnosable, including making Harris a psychopath. If you look at what took place at Mountain Vista with the two girls, if you'll remember this from a few years ago, that we interrupted from their course towards a mass shooting at that school. Both of them were diagnosed. The Aurora Theater shooter, diagnosed. The Planned Parenthood shooter, incompetent to stand trial now, two years removed from that crime. The idea that we're going to have a bunch of uh, mass shootings separate from mental illness, it could be true, but I think that hasn't been our experience here in Colorado. It is true generally that those who struggle with mental illness often turn that violence onto themselves more often than they... I think that's true, yeah. Yeah. Uh, In any case, President Trump also has suggested speeding up capital punishment in cases like this. Here's what he had to say about that on Monday. Today, I'm also directing the Department of Justice to propose legislation ensuring that those who commit hate crimes and mass murders face the death penalty and that this capital punishment be delivered quickly, decisively, and without years of needless delay. Presumably, he's talking about federal crimes and prisoners. You you sought the death penalty in the Aurora shooting, but the jury didn't go for it. One juror didn't go for it. Uh, Would President Trump's proposal work, do you think? No. I do think that speeding up the appellate process might have an impact on whatever deterrence value there may be to capital punishment. But I don't think that any of the mass shooters that we have seen recently made their decisions considering at all whether or not there was a death penalty. I don't believe that. Some people say that president's rhetoric may be playing a role in this. I mean, they point, for instance, to Facebook ads his campaign has bought describing immigration as an invasion. Um, Similar language was used in a manifesto the alleged Texas shooter posted shortly before his attack. Do you think the president's words serve to fan the flames of this kind of violent extremism? I think, we again, we'd be speculating. Listen, I'm no fan of the rhetoric. I don't talk like the president does. I don't adopt his speech or the way he describes things. But at the same time, at the end of the day, 
100% of the responsibility for these evil acts lies with the evildoers. And everything else is political distraction for political gain. And I don't think it helps us get anywhere. We had mass shootings under President Obama who didn't talk anything like this. We had mass shootings before President Obama, under President Clinton, under President Bush. They're going to continue after President Trump. And it won't be because of the language that the president gives. Uh, let's bring this back to Colorado. What besides a red flag gun law that you think is, is properly tailored, would you suggest to perhaps prevent or reduce the likelihood of another mass murder? Well, I think it's a great question. And I love that you asked Tom Sullivan about it, a man for whom I have such tremendous respect. And Tom was candid in the idea that, look, I don't, I don't think a red flag bill is going to protect a lone wolf mass shooter like we've seen across the country or even here in Colorado. I don't have a solution, a silver bullet to fix those things. I don't think anybody does. And if they tell you they do, they're lying or they're misguided. But I do think there are things that we can and should do in the state of Colorado to reduce the instance and uh, opportunity for gun violence. I'll give you an example. So we have laws on the books right now that everyone would agree with. Left, right, center, like convicted felons ought not possess firearms. Uh, guys and gals, and mostly guys, convicted of domestic violence or operating under domestic violence protection orders should not possess firearms. And we have laws that say it's a crime if they try to go in and lie about their backgrounds to get firearms. It's a crime if they possess firearms. But you know what we haven't done is we haven't put teeth into those laws. We are gumming those laws because every single one of those laws results in probation or the eligibility for probation. A convicted felon could buy a gun and possess it illegally, get convicted, do it again, do it again, do it again, and it remains probation eligible. That is to say there is never jail time for that kind of behavior. There is never the promise of incarceration for that behavior. And until there is that promise, these folks believe they can operate with some impunity on what they're doing. So there needs to be mandatory prison, in my opinion, and maybe even mandatory prison that's in addition to any other crime that brings them into the criminal justice system. Is that a judge's discretion? What's happening? What needs to change? That is a judge's discretion. And if you look at the pendulum that we're seeing swing far, far to the left under the gold dome, there is absolutely no appetite to create the promise of incarceration for almost any act. In fact, it's the opposite. You'll see the legislature work its way into providing more and more discretion to judges who are told over and over again, your goal is to try to keep people out of prison. And they respond to that. Well, uh, we need to have more teeth in this. I'll tell you something else. There's a law in the books that says if if you go and try to buy a gun, triggers a, a note to CBI when they do the Colorado background Bureau check. Colorado Bureau of Investigation. Colorado Bureau of Investigations. They do a background check on the NCIC CCI database. And that triggers two messages, one that goes to the gun show that the gun store that says, do not sell a gun to this person. It also sends one to law enforcement that says, hey, dude's trying to buy a gun that shouldn't have a gun. What we have noticed, and there have even been some reporting on this, is that those do not turn into full-fledged investigations that result in cases that get brought to my office to prosecute. So you have people trying to buy guns that shouldn't have them with impunity. That has to stop. One last question. We have about a minute left, George Brockler. Do you think that, uh, you know, we've we've heard the term lone wolf several times in these conversations. Uh, Do you think that uh, white uh, nationalism, uh, domestic terrorism, uh, is that an issue that needs to be addressed in this country? Unequivocally. 
I mean, there's simply very little doubt at this point, given the information that we have, that the motivation for the uh, shooter down in Texas was one of some sort of white supremacy or some sort of xenophobia or racism, no doubt about it. And I am concerned gravely, not just as the DA, but as the DAD, as a dad in this community, that that kind of sentiment finds any traction or root. I worry about how social media has made it easier for that to grow. Do you think that it finds traction or roots in this White House? I know you've hinted at this already. uh... Intentionally or unintentionally, I think that they find solace where they can. If they think that the president is supportive of them, they'll latch onto that. Whether he intends to be or not, I can see them trying to read into whatever messages he sends, one of support for their position. And that is flat wrong. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. George Brockler, district attorney for Arapahoe and other counties in the South Metro. He prosecuted the Aurora theater shooter who is serving life in prison. There may be policy changes after a CPR news story about a new member of the state's Independent Ethics Commission. Deborah Johnson was investigated for harassment during her time as Denver's clerk and recorder. CPR public affairs reporter Benta Birkeland learned that Johnson ultimately agreed to counseling and to spend six months away from the office that she used to oversee. So first off, let's listen to Benta's report. In October 2016, ballots for the general election were being mailed out across Colorado. Well, besides who you would like to see as our next commander-in-chief, you also have a lot of proposals this year. Today, ballots are sent out to all registered voters. But when Denver residents were considering their ballots, they had no way of knowing that their elected clerk and recorder, Deborah Johnson, had agreed to stay out of the elections division office and avoid employees who had complained about her conduct. Amber McReynolds was Denver's director of elections at the time and worked for Johnson. It was my responsibility to communicate the terms and the the agreement to staff and what that would look like. CPR has reviewed security footage of the incident in February 2016 that sparked the investigation. During an office gathering, Johnson allegedly pulled up a female employee's dress. CPR has also learned that on another occasion, Johnson allegedly pushed a dollar bill down the front of a male staffer's pants. This is the most difficult situation I've ever faced in a workplace environment. That's probably the same for all the other employees. Former Elections Chief McReynolds forwarded staff complaints to the Denver City Attorney's Office. Whether they were involved or not, it was a stress on the entire team. Running a presidential election and keeping frankly, our heads up, focused on the work, focused on serving the public, was what we did. CPRs obtained an agreement between the city and Johnson. In addition to avoiding the elections office until November 1st, it contains a long list of other conditions, not drinking at work-related events, not touching any employee other than handshaking, and not making jokes or references that were in any way sexual. Johnson also agreed to attend training on harassment and retaliation and boundaries. Johnson denies harassing staff. Allegations are allegations until they're proven otherwise, and they were never proven otherwise. Johnson tells CPR she doesn't have an alcohol problem and signed off on the agreement so the office could get on with its work. However, two days after the dress incident, Johnson apologized to the woman in an email for, quote, causing grief and trauma, and said her behavior was inappropriate. 
given the situation, you know, both parties, we did what we needed to do to make sure that we can continue to run the office. Denver would not provide details on the results of the Johnson investigation. Carla Pierce supervises employment law at the city attorney's office. The way the statute's written, we shall not disclose complaints of sexual harassment and investigations. The city spent $30,000 on the investigation and legal counsel for Johnson. Last year, Johnson also hired an outside consultant to study the culture in her office. Robert Tipton interviewed employees and concluded that, in general, professional boundaries weren't clear or respected. And he observed, quote, passive acceptance of inappropriate, derogatory, and disrespectful language. Yeah, I guess the best way to describe it is the environment became kind of casual and people felt a sense of permission to use words that you might not use with your grandmother if she were present. Those issues were brought forward at times and nothing seemed to be done about it. So there's a sense of futility. A year after the initial incident, Johnson announced that she would not run for a third term as clerk and recorder. But at the end of the last legislative session, the Democratic Speaker of the House nominated her for a new unpaid state role. Mr. Randall, please read the title of the resolution. House Resolution 1010 by Representative Becker concerning the approval of the House of Representatives of the Speaker's appointment of Deborah Johnson to the Independent Ethics Commission. House leaders in both parties say they were impressed with Johnson's record as clerk and were unaware that she had any personnel issues during her time in office. The motion is to pass House Resolution 1010. All those in favor, voice vote aye. Aye. Opposed, no. The motion is passed. Johnson's first meeting as a member of the Ethics Commission is later this month. All right. And Bent is in the studio now, along with David Sachs, who covers city government for Denverite, which is part of Colorado Public Radio. They have been gathering reaction to our story since it published Monday. Uh, David Denver has a new clerk, former city councilman Paul Lopez, who sworn in just last month. Is he taking any action to change policies in that office? Uh, He says he will uh, because of Benta's reporting. Lopez has said he's interested in crafting new policy for his office that would out elected officials basically with substantiated claims against them, which actually in this case would be him. He's the only elected official in the office um, while keeping victims of harassment anonymous. So it's a delicate balance to strike because in, in an office of 47 people, victims might be less anonymous or might feel less anonymous, and and you don't want to stop them from coming forward from reporting harassment. Yeah, that's the sensitive balance here between letting the public know what's happening and making sure that victims feel comfortable coming forward. Uh, and and I think this story really brings that home, that there doesn't seem to be a way for the public to learn about complaints against Denver's elected officials, David. Yeah, short of a reporter getting a tip, um, like a leak or uh, someone pressing charges or filing a lawsuit, um, those are the only way it gets out right now. And last year, the city council did create um, the city's strictest policy when it comes to uh I guess, outing elected officials, the city council sort of created this policy that would, you know, it's against themselves in some ways that would allow council members to be censured by their colleagues, which is basically an official scolding um, in public. Um, but specifically, investigations would still not be released. Mm-hmm. So the public would still be kept in the dark. Uh, the mayor's office has its own policy, which is less strict than the city council's. Um, the disciplinary measures uh, the disciplinary measures aren't even mentioned in that policy, except when talking about employees filing fake reports. So um, there is one elected official, Councilman Kevin Flynn, 
who says he's going to lobby to expand public accountability citywide um, in all the departments and remove the veil from publicly elected officials to the greatest extent possible. Denver has an ethics board. Have you talked with its members? I have. Well, I spoke with the executive director, Michael Henry, and um, this is an independent board that handles ethics issues, but only ones that are brought to their attention. So um, Johnson's case was not brought to their attention. No one filed a complaint, um, even though the city attorney's office was well aware of what was going on. So the Ethics Commission had ha- had no idea because um, uh, no one reported it to them. But the executive director of the ethics body told me no one filed a complaint. Um, they were in the dark. And even if someone had alerted them, sexual harassment is not covered in the ethics code. So it's out of the board's jurisdiction. And the board can't discipline anyone anyway. And interestingly, they do have the ability to make investigations public, even probes of elected officials. So many different dimensions uh, to this and different ways of, of treating these kinds of cases, even just within one city. Uh, Benta, as we said, Deborah Johnson now sits on the state's Ethics Commission. Part of your reporting looked at uh, how she was nominated for that post, which I should say is unpaid. What have you learned about that? Yep, she was approved in the evening. It was two days before the legislative session ended, and it happened quickly. And Democratic Speaker of the House Casey Becker was the one who nominated her to this five-member commission. We were looking at a few people um, to pass an appointment to the Independent Ethics Commission. The House must vote on it, and it must be a two-thirds vote. And other names that I brought to Republicans to earn Republican support didn't um, garner their support, so I asked them who they would be willing to support, that, and that was a name they came up with. And then we made some calls and did, did some vetting, and I spoke to her specifically. She was an independent elected official. She didn't have a boss. I hadn't heard of any complaints, and the research we did didn't indicate any. And she was approved unanimously, but uh, lawmakers were not aware of the harassment investigation, I gather. The people I've talked to say they didn't know about any personnel issues in Johnson's past. And top Democrats say Johnson wouldn't have been nominated in the first place had they known. I talked to Democratic Representative Susan Lantine of Denver, and she said she's just glad the state legislature passed a law last session that requires the findings of credible complaints against state lawmakers to be released to the public. And she thinks the city should update its policies to make things more transparent. Right. There's a contrast between the state capitol and the Denver and city county building across the park. Well, now that uh, Johnson's on the commission, where do things go from here, Benton? Well, they have their uh, meeting later this month, and the commission's charged with examining whether elected officials are complying with the state's gift ban or in any way improperly profiting from their elected position. Amanda Gonzalez heads Common Cause Colorado, and that's the group that backed the ballot initiative that actually created the Ethics Commission. And she says these allegations against the former Denver clerk are problematic. Knowing that these are allegations that we haven't seen the report, that we don't know exactly what happened. What I think is important is that we are setting up a system that instills trust. And I want to be fair, but that's the thing is we want to make sure that our system is fair and that people can trust that an independent ethics commission is doing what it's purported to do, that it's one of the guardians of fairness in our state. And so Johnson will have a four-year term. The Independent Ethics Commission does have rules around conflicts of interest, so commissioners could recuse themselves from certain votes if there's a financial tie or something. But there isn't a mechanism to remove someone from the commission itself. Huh. Well, thanks to both of you for your original reporting and then uh, following up after the story. I appreciate it. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Ryan. 
We heard from CPR's Benta Berkland and Denverites, David Sachs. The man who found the Titanic 12,000 feet underwater, Robert Ballard, launches an expedition tomorrow to the South Pacific. This time he's determined to find Amelia Earhart's plane. National Geographic will film the search for a documentary. In 1937, Earhart set out to circumnavigate the globe. Around the world, Lady Bird and her crew. Ready for an adventure that nobody has ever tried before. Amelia Earhart, out to circle the Earth at the latitude of the equator. and that's She Earth. never completed that flight. So after more than 80 years, might someone finally solve Earhart's disappearance? For some perspective on this, another Amelia Earhart is here, the reporter for Nine News, who's also a private pilot. And she has spent most of her life researching her namesake. And Amelia, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Why do you think people are still fascinated with this story 80 years later? There's something special about Amelia in the charisma and the mystique that she had while she was living. You know, she loved, she led her life very privately, even though she had these big public goals and these big audacious dreams. She was still a bit of a mystery. I don't think we ever truly saw who Amelia was. So when she disappeared, I think we all kind of wanted more. That's interesting. I think what you're saying is that even when she was alive, we wanted more. We wanted mm-hmm. to know more about who she was. That has only amplified since her disappearance. I think so, because she was so private. When she was living, she was so focused on her goals. And, you know, when people think about searching for her and going out and finding the the end to this mystery, I think it's because we didn't get enough details while she was still here. But mm. you know what? I, there's also a mystique to that and being mysterious even past your disappearance. I wonder, though, if she'd absolutely hate the kind of attention that she's gotten. I've heard that from a lot of people, especially Uh in her hometown of Atchison, Kansas, where I go every year for the Amelia Earhart Festival. A lot of people have that theory. They say, we don't know if Amelia would have wanted all this hoopla and search, you know, years later to find the plane. Okay, five years ago, you were ready to make your own trip around the world, retracing Amelia Earhart's 1937 flight path. You'd raise something like $2 million in sponsorships for this years of planning. Uh, Then you almost didn't go. Uh, Why not? Tell us what happened. You know, my family, having the same last name, Earhart, spelled exactly the same. It was always this story that was passed through the years, especially on my dad's side, that we were somehow distantly related. Well, my mom, Debbie, when she and my dad met, she said, Glenn, we are naming our daughter Amelia Earhart. And he said, that's a crazy idea. You know, she's going to feel like she has to fly, like she has to fly around the world someday. And mom went out. And when it all comes down to it, that family history of somehow being distantly related was disproven. My first genealogist in college who I hired told me I was related. A secondary search showed me that I wasn't. So a lot of people said, you don't deserve to go on this flight. You shouldn't follow her path. And, you know, ultimately, the big lesson that came out of it was, no, I'm not related to Amelia, but I relate to her in a you know passionate pursuit for adventure and piloting. And somehow I flew all the way around the world. Do you think you would have had the bug to fly if you hadn't been named Amelia Earhart? Do you, I, do you wonder I sometimes? Like, I do. And people ask me that question a lot. And uh-huh. so I think about it often. But when I look at women who are, you know, in my demographic, living in Denver, sort of doing the same things that I do outside of aviation, my girlfriends don't have any tie to it. They're fascinated by it, but they haven't been invited. So that's what I'm trying to do is invite other women into the cockpit. That is, the opportunity was opened to you. That door was opened, and you walked through it. It sounds like you think not enough women have that door opened for them. 
Yes. The the opportunities aren't necessarily laid out because it is more of a masculine profession traditionally. It's intimidating. It's a very complicated, complex world. And when you go to the airport, out of the flight schools, it's mostly older men. Mm-hmm. So to get in there, you have to have that attitude of, you know what, I'm going to come in here and try to learn just like everyone else and just get out there and do it. So you did this trip circumnavigating the globe. Were you hoping to find the crash site? Was that your mission? No, absolutely not. In fact, I've always said, because having the same name and not being related, people have always reached out to me and said, Amelia, do you know what happened to her? And of course I don't. I chose to focus on how Amelia led her life while she was still living, her passion for adventure and getting other women interested in aviation. And I'll let people like Robert Ballard focus on her disappearance. But this one certainly does feel promising. But I gather that you were scanning the ground. Oh, absolutely. From 27,000 feet circling over Howland Island. It just looks like a a speck of dust on the ground flying over the ocean. And I actually brought all my flight records here for you to show you how complex the weather is flying through this area of the world. This is the last path. And, you know, 82 years later, we still have trouble flying through those remote areas. Yeah, the last path. So July 2nd, 1937, she reported running low on fuel as she approached this Howland Island. It's in the Pacific, about halfway between Hawaii and Australia. Uh, Here's a recreation by Discovery of what's generally accepted as her last known transmission picked up by a U.S. Coast Guard cutter. Cadence AQQ, calling Itasca. We are on the line 157-337. It seems like there are endless theories around Amelia Earhart's disappearance and new ones springing up all the time. I mean, I think of one from a couple of years ago that she was captured by the Japanese. Uh, But the photo that it was based on was discredited. Is there a theory that you put stock in or do they all seem like nonsense to you? Well, now that I've flown through that part of the world, you know, there is a lot more of me that looks out at that big ocean and says, if you're scanning for an island that is about 650 square acres, a tiny remote location, it's going to be so hard to find. But when it comes to Amelia and why we also have so many theories about her, Most other things we can Google and find out the definitive answer. What happened in this situation with Amelia? She's one of our last cases of wonder. We can sit around and wonder what happened to Amelia. And I think there's value to that. And so help us construct what you would build as the the most logical theory. You've referenced how difficult this part of the world is to fly into. Certainly that's an element here. You know, when I think about taking off from Papua New Guinea like I did in the Pilatus PC-12, which was a single-engine turboprop, and flying at about 270 knots, we're at 27,000 feet. And let me just say, a single-engine plane. Like, (laughs) when I think about that today, when I mostly fly in planes that have two and four engines, the idea of essentially no backup is a terrifying concept to me. Absolutely. And when you fly with only one engine, you literally have a point of no return. There's a point on your flight where you take off from the end of the runway and you can glide back. And once you reach that point, you have to keep going. And Amelia was well past her point of no return. So that seems to play into a theory that you... I guess, over your lifetime, have slowly built yourself? Well, it's not something I want to reach out and and research on my own. Like I said, I'll leave that to the professionals. But now that I've flown over that part of the ocean, it would be incredibly hard to find that tiny little strip of land in the middle of the South Pacific. And it's, it's daunting when I think back on it. Okay, Earhart was no stranger to overcoming obstacles in flight, including storms. Why don't we listen as she recounts what happened on her solo transatlantic flight in 1932. She took off from Harbor Grace, Newfoundland at dusk. I flew for a couple of hours while sunset uh, lasted, 
and then two more hours as the moon came up over a bank of clouds. I had fair weather for four hours. Then I ran into a storm, which was one of the most severe I have ever been in. I milled around in the storm for probably an hour and with difficulty kept my course. I had been troubled with my exhaust manifold burning through all night. A weld broke shortly after I left Harbor Grace and I could see the damage increasing as the night wore on. She's so matter-of-fact about this thing that I would absolutely be flailing my arms about. So she makes it to Ireland. She lands in what she described as the best available pasture, and she taxied to the front door of a surprised farmer's cottage. Can you imagine being that farmer? My goodness. In any case, what, what do you think of Robert Ballard's upcoming expedition? So he's a retired U.S. naval officer and oceanographer. Is he legit? You know, I have to say, this is probably our best shot. I mean, he found Titanic. He's been a part of many other incredible recoveries. He's not going to put his reputation on the line unless he really thinks he's got a good shot at figuring out what happened. But there are so many other factors. You know, the fact that the plane may have come down so hard and fast up upon one of the coral reefs on the island atolls that it could have just been totally demolished. And then 82 years later, there's nothing left. There's essentially nothing left to right, find. Yeah. Right. So, but I have to say, this one feels pretty promising. The fact that National Geographic is backing it, they don't launch into projects without a lot of research. When you see National Geographic come along with a new documentary and search for Amelia Earhart, is there, though, a part of you that thinks this is just for the ratings more than the research? I mean, it just strikes me that Amelia Earhart is also good business, 80 some odd years later. Yeah, of course my mind goes that direction. And and that's what a lot of people really accused me of with my flight as well, saying, oh, why are you bringing up Amelia Earhart? You just want to benefit from the publicity you'll get from it. But Mm. for those of us who want to go out and seek adventure in this sense of, you know, going out there and flying through the South Pacific or Robert Ballard going underwater and searching in the South Pacific, I think it's something that's born into us. And, you know, if it does turn out to be a publicity stunt, I'll be, you know, the first one to apologize and say I was wrong. But hey, if we find her, this is going to ignite a whole new curiosity with young men, young women all over the world. I think of the criticism that you have faced. I wonder to what extent it may be sexist. And I also think, gosh, is that the kind of criticism that Amelia Earhart, uh, for whom you are named, might have also felt? Have you given thought to that? Of course, of course. And I think hers was much more intense because she was, of course, so far before me in terms of her flight training. And there were really no other. There were a a few other women flying at the time, but she was the most well-known. I think mine seemed tough as well because it was, you know, a time where you can just pop on Twitter and anonymously leave a comment about what your thoughts are. But (laughs) now that I've done it, it's really shut the... the, uh, the critics up when it comes to saying, oh, you shouldn't do this. It's, well, I already did. You know, I flew around the world. And like I said, it's not about being related to Amelia. It's about relating to her. What was the diciest experience that you had when you did that around the world flight? I would say Papua New Guinea. It was Papua New Guinea. Papua New Guinea. I mean, they speak over 82 different languages on the island. Women aren't exactly respected in Papua New Guinea. So when I got off the airplane, and I'm listed on all my documents here as pilot in command, Amelia Earhart, and I did have a co-pilot with me. It was required with the fuel tank I had on board, plus I was flying a 
four and a half million dollar plane that I borrowed. But when I got off the plane, I was met by 10 armed guards at the airport, all holding up paperwork saying pilot. And they refused to speak to me. They would only speak to my male co-pilot, Shane Jordan. So when it came down to it, took some cash to get us out there, incredibly complicated. And that was the first time that I was genuinely scared that I wasn't going to finish. What did you learn about yourself from that experience? Oh, everything. Everything. Identity is literally up to us to create day to day, whoever we choose to be and what we choose to focus on and represent. And you know what? My last name could have been anything. And I would have taken just as much joy out of that flight. But it feels good to make the choice to be connected to somebody so spectacular and respectable, in my opinion. Thanks for being with us. Maybe we'll have you back on after this mission is complete. I would love that. Blue skies. Blue skies. Amelia Earhart (laughs) is a reporter at Nine News and a private pilot. She has spent much of her life researching that other Amelia Earhart. And on Wednesday, the man who found the Titanic, Robert Ballard, will begin his trek to the South Pacific to find Earhart's plane. Again, National Geographic is turning it into a film that's set for an October release. Okay, finally today, I went to a movie over the weekend to escape the heat, and the thought occurred to me several times. What if a shooter walked in? Where would I hide? Could I make it to the exit in time? I remember feeling this way after the Aurora Theater shooting as well. And part of its training, I've been taught to look for the exits now. So I'm wondering, have you had the same thought in the last few days? If so, I want to hear about it. Where that occurred to you, what precisely ran through your mind. If you have a way of recording yourself, please do and send the file to news at CPR.org. Otherwise, just email that same address with your written account and we may reach out to help you record something. So again, news at CPR.org. I'm so glad you could spend time with us. Our executive producer is Carl Bielek, and our audio engineers are Michael Hughes, Matt Herz, Shane Rumsey, and I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.